We're going to pray again and open God's Word together. We need His help. And uh, we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark, but we're taking just a little side trip. Last week we began that because in Mark 10, some Pharisees had come to Jesus and they were testing Him. Actually, they were laying a trap for Him. And they had asked Him about causes for divorce and put a very seemingly simple question before Him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And so Jesus had taken that conversation all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we were looking at that last week, and we're actually going to dig in a little deeper today in Genesis 1 and 2. So that's where we're headed in a moment. And because I know that this is a really important topic, and because I know that it's a very tender topic, as I noted last week, I'm not aware of a single person or household here that hasn't been impacted in some way, whether directly or even indirectly, by this issue of divorce. We, we want to press through the difficulty of the subject and get back to the heart of God to see His design and even the hope that He gives us, because we're going to come to something today that is actually a little discouraging if we just were left at that particular point, but God never wants to just leave us in discouragement. He really does want to deliver and rescue and and reconcile and restore. All of those are words that describe the the powerful love and movement of his heart toward people like us who've really made a mess of things. So let's pray together and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Father, we know that the issues related to marriage and in particular the struggles of divorce, of separation, of offense and sin one against another they are perhaps most intensely experienced in this realm of marriage. And what you designed to be a good gift, a blessing for all mankind, has become one of the sources of greatest pain and sorrow in our world. We ask that as we look into your word, that we would not only see your goodness and power and wisdom on display, but that we also might recognize that the power to experience that blessing doesn't reside solely within us. There are opportunities certainly to believe and obey, to trust you and follow your path, but there is something else that has to happen within us, something of a supernatural work. And so we come to you today saying, Oh, great God, do your work in our hearts. First of all, do that work of illuminating our minds because these truths are spiritually understood. And then would you empower our wills so even that little bit of resolve that that we might marshal into obedience, which is not powerful enough to do it. Who here can really resolve to do all that is necessary? Oh, God, would you strengthen our wills to obey? Give us hope as we press forward in faith. And we ask that in it all, we would know your great love for us, recognizing that even marriage itself is ultimately designed to portray the great love that Jesus has for his church. So give us help today. Open the word that we may be strengthened and encouraged, convicted, and challenged. All of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. 
We're going to continue to go deeper into these themes of God's image being created, hardwired into your existence and mine, and then the blessing, because God's creation was intended to be a blessing in every way. We don't have time to read through the entire creation account, but there are several themes that would, that would just begin to emerge as you read through that. First of all, you would see that God is all-powerful, and whatever He says comes to pass. And that little phrase, God said, is, is almost always followed by this little phrase, and it was so. And so when God says, let the, let the light appear, light comes into existence. When he says, let the skies be filled with all sorts of flying creatures, that's exactly what happens. When he says, let the waters teem with fish and all kinds of swimming creatures, that's exactly what happens. And then you come to the sixth day of creation. And in verse 26, we read these powerful words. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then continue reading through verse 28, though it's not on the screen. And God Bless them. So this theme of blessing is woven into the creation account from start to finish. And this is significant for us because people, many people today are very confused about their identity. And I don't want you to be confused. I don't want to be confused. This is one of the most critical truths in all of life to know. Not simply that you are created by someone or something, but that you've actually been created in the image of this God, created in likeness to Him. Now, we could have a long discussion about what the image of God really means. But when you think in terms of God, who is a spirit, He doesn't dwell in a body as you and I do, you think about some of what is is formally called the incommunicable attributes. These are things that you and I will never share. For instance, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's eternal in the sense that he has no beginning. You can't go back in a point of time and say, oh, that's where God's birthday is located. He wasn't born. He's the uncreated God. We've been learning that new hymn, God the Uncreated One. I mean, there's so many things about him that we will never share in fully, and yet this is true. We are created in his image. You have the the capacity to think, to reason, to love, to live. So many things about you that are God-like, and that's what God intended. That gives you significance far beyond what one of the uh, origin stories of our present generation would say. That over millions and billions of years, you are the product of random changes, an evolutionary process. And aren't you thankful that some of your ancestors along the way, according to this origin story, decided that you should have eyes in your head and ears? And I, I guess through the exercise of, of, of a really strong will said, see, hear, 
that at some point your fins turned into appendages that could actually grab things and you know the origin story but i've often thought how empty how insignificant that renders my life if that really is true that i'm just the product of of random events over a long period of time God begins at this particular point because he wants you to be secure in this identity. While you are not divine in the sense that he is God, and you and I will never be gods, we are created in his image, in his likeness, created to know him, to be in relationship. And so we're a reflection of God in his perfect nature. You're people who have spiritual life, ethical and moral sensitivities. You have a conscience and the capacity to represent God. And, and again, if you cast this into its original setting where Moses is writing these things for the Israelites as they've, as they've been delivered from slavery, and they're told that they are image bearers of God, that would have a little more meaning than for us in this present-day setting Kings and monarchs in that particular day were known for establishing their, their likeness throughout their kingdom. And you would know this about Egyptian pharaohs, wouldn't you? Whether it be some of the more well-known archaeological sites and the statues or a sphinx or a pyramid, those are physical structures that are designed and constructed to represent the king or the pharaoh in his power. And God is actually saying to people like you and me, you're my image bearers. And he didn't just locate them in one or two or 10 or 20 places. His whole intention from the get-go was to fill the earth with his representatives. You are created to image God. Now notice some things about Genesis 1.26 that are really important, and they're going to have bearing on, on, on marriage gives you your identity as one created in the image of God. Here's a second thought for you. Did you pick up on this theme? There's equality between the genders. Both are necessary. Look again at verse 26. Let us make man. And that reference is not to the male gender. That term is actually applied to the human race. And so God is saying, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness and let them, there it is, plural, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on and so forth. And then verse 27, God created man or humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And a couple of key words are attached to both genders. Dominion, subdue. It, it's clear that both male and female are given power. They are representatives of God on earth, and they have received by divine delegation a measure of authority and power. It's interesting to me that in our present day, there's a lot of conversation about equal pay for equal work. And I've got to tell you, there's biblical warrant for that. This may poke a hole in some of you guys who carry around a little bit of a male chauvinistic attitude, but there's biblical warrant for this. Did you know that back in 1963, President John F. Kennedy actually signed a labor law that amended the Fair Labor Standards Act, and its whole aim was to abolish wage disparity based on gender differences? And here we are, 56 years later, still having the conversation. Why didn't that law fundamentally alter the thinking of our 
country. Why is it still a problem? You know, because no law ever remedies the problem inside us. No law will ever remedy what Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, describes as incurable sickness at the heart level. And in the same way the Egyptians sinfully exploited the Hebrews, the first audience to receive this book, so people in our generation continue to exploit one another. And sometimes that happens even between genders. This is not the way God created us to be. So there is equality. There's distinction. We're going to come to that in just a moment. But let's get this straight as the people of God. There's not a superior gender or an inferior gender. There's equality there. Now, the second point we do need to consider from the text is that there is an obvious dependence that emerges, and there's a really important term that I think we ought to just put into the conversation at this point because it rises out of the text, and that is a complementary relationship. Complementarian is sometimes a term that you hear used, and biblically so in this conversation uh, of, of marriage. Now, when I use that term complementary, I'm using it to indicate that the, the partnership of these two, as we're seeing in the text, is necessary for there to be a whole. Each is dependent on the other. And there are some things that emerge in this text as you continue reading them, uh, reading through this. We'll come to this in chapter 2 when God actually finishes creating the man. God is the one who says it's not good for him to be alone. And then he provides a divine solution. Several things, though, about the man that make him distinct from the woman. Turn to chapter 2 with me, please, and we're just going to survey these very quickly. Look at verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So he's created by God from the dust of the ground. Skip to verse 15. Verse 15 tells us that the Lord God took the man, and we are speaking of the male at this point, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here's number two. He's positioned by God to work and keep the garden. But then we come to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Designed into this man is a need. Designed into him, specifically, is a need for help. And furthermore, as we look in verse 18, when God says, I will make him a helper fit for him, I would submit to you that the man has been prepared for his counterpart. God's preparing him in a special way to recognize you can't do this thing by yourself. You know, I'm just going to insert this as well. I'm struck by the fact that while men are often thought of as being independent and less than relational, at least less than women are in their, in, in their perceived need of relationship, men are every bit as dependent upon other human beings and every bit as relational as women are. It might be expressed differently, it might be practiced differently, but this whole notion that has crept into our culture especially, and maybe some of it goes back to the you know, the cowboy heroes of yesteryear or some of the other uh, heroes that you would see portrayed in movies that there's this rugged independence, we can do it on our own. Sorry, guys, you can't. Uh, Even though you were perfect at creation as Adam was, he didn't build in everything that you need. And so he's preparing, God is preparing this man for a counterpart. 
Now notice some things about the woman. Again, look at verse 18. When God says, I will make for him a helper fit for him, the, the account goes on to say that out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so they all received names. But now look at what God does. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So this woman is created from the man's rib. That's like a step of refinement. Boys came out of the dirt. Women came out of a finished product. (laughs) And notice the terminology. God says, I will make for him. This is God actively involved, the great creator and designer, the finest artist, artisan who ever lived is actively doing this. Not simply speaking, let there be a woman. His word is powerful enough to do it, but this is a beautiful moment in the creation account where God is actively involved, now drawing the rib from Adam's side and making, fashioning, creating a woman, and then God brings her to the man. And the words of an old Puritan pastor named Matthew Henry seem wise and timeless He is the one who famously wrote, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That may be a little more symbolism read into this, But I don't think God is upset when we think of the woman in that way. So she is designed by God from Adam's rib. She is designed, number two, in the likeness of God as Adam's help. Now, let's explore what this means, that she is a helper fit for him. What does that mean? Well, first of all, she's God-like help. If you trace the use of this term, helper, through the Old Testament, you will find some wonderful truth unfolding with reference to God Himself. There's one particular uh, account, though, that I I just want to call your attention to. That's Exodus 18, verse 4, where Moses, who in naming his second son, chooses the name Eliezer. And Moses actually writes the explanation into Exodus 18 for us so we don't miss it. The God of my father was my help. And how did this great God help Moses? Well, he gives a little more explanation. He delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. I probably should have died in Egypt, but that's not what happened because this great God exercised his great power and helped me. And so the name Eliezer, the two parts, you might recognize the first, Eli, is one of the names for God. It's a little longer version of El, right? Elohim, Eli, God. And then the last half of that, E-Z-E-R, as we translate it into the English, that's the word for help or helper. And that's what the first woman is. She's an Azer. She's God-like help created for the man 
in the image of God. Here's a second truth, though. The woman is the man's counterpart. And a very literal and very pedantic translation of this term would be according to his opposite. And that tells us she is actually the perfectly corresponding one. So whatever was deficient in Adam that God intentionally left uncreated in him, he creates and and puts into the woman and brings this woman to this man. So now both of them, dependent on the other, by the design of God, create a very special whole. A godly woman brings help not just to a husband or family, but to the world in some very extraordinary ways. The Bible is full of God-like helpers. I've always loved the story of Jochebed and Miriam. They were the two women who developed a strategy that resulted in the salvation of Moses. Just read Exodus sometimes. Just read the opening chapters of Exodus sometime and you think, praise God for heroic, helping women. Abigail is married to a husband whose name, Nabal, means fool. And he is a fool. But because she is a God-fearing, God-like woman, she negotiates the life of her fool husband and all of their household. She is a helper like God. The Proverbs 31 woman would be an example of a God-like helper. She is an industrious entrepreneur dealing in textiles and clothing, real estate and imports. Her husband, the text says, trusts in her because she manages the family affairs, and that includes the organization and oversight of servants, mercy ministry to the needy in the community, and provision for the children. And yes, she is the ideal woman. And I know that it frustrates many of you who are in the room. It's like, no, no woman can be all of that. But you know what? If you live out your life as God designed you and created you, and you may not do all of that, but if you do what he has created you and called you to do, you will be a God-like helper. The women who surrounded Jesus and the disciples were women, some of them of financial means, all of them of faithful service and loyal support, and they are precious to Jesus. There's a woman named Priscilla who serves alongside her husband, Aquila. They are tent-making, church-planting pioneers in the book of Acts. And she was of such spiritual knowledge that when she and her husband encounter a powerful preacher who just hasn't been taught the full truth and, and in a sense told the full story, she with her husband comes alongside him and instructs him and strengthens his ministry. And Apollos to this day is regarded as one of the greatest first century preachers. All of these are examples of women who, following their created design, exercise that powerful gift of help. And in doing so, they show us a little bit more of what God is as our helper. So she is designed in the likeness of God as Adam's help. And this is what ought to rid our hearts and minds of that notion once and for all, that that. You know, the ladies, sorry ladies, bear with me for a second, but I'm, I'm confronting the sin here. That, well, they're, they're good for cooking and cleaning, having our children, running our errands. 
Brother, if, if that's where you think the women in your life belong, you have some repenting to do. And I say that in all seriousness. These are truths that God is giving us in the opening chapters of the Bible because they are foundational to our understanding of who we are and how we are designed by Him to function together. But the Bible says she is fit for Him, and this brings me to the third part of this. She is oriented by God as Adam's counterpart. The perfectly corresponding one. She shares the same nature of Adam, but she's different. Whatever was not good about his existence is now completed through her. And God gave, as one author writes them, the opportunity of marriage for their joy and help. Now look at Adam's response, because this brings us to the second big heading. You are created to experience God's blessing in marriage. And and a quick aside, I know some of you are not in a marriage relationship Some of you have not had that privilege yet. Others of you have been through it, and for various reasons, it has come to an end. Please know that this is not the only uh, relationship through which you can find God's great blessing, but there is a blessing designed into marriage. So bear with me, please. I don't mean to be exclusive of those of you who who are unmarried at this moment. Now, look at this. Adam's response testifies to the blessing of God's creation. Look at verse 23. When God brings her to the man, then he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I think I've said it before here in this place. I know I've said it in many other settings where we've worked through this particular passage, but the English just comes up a little short. But you need to understand that there are, there are at least three things taking place here. The first is exuberant joy. There is an exuberant joy that just spills out because those little words, this is now, could also be understood as this at last. Remember the exercise that God just put him through. And one of the things that emerges as, as uh, Adam is naming all of these animals, he sees them in pairs. But for Adam, there was not found one. I'm not paired at this point. But now God has brought this creature to me. And so his exuberant joy begins to overflow. To this point, creation has been marked by God's abundant provision and his creation of the woman for the man is no exception. She is abundantly more than he could have anticipated or hoped for. But there's a second thing that happens here. He he actually names her, but but not in a scientific way as if he had just named all the other creatures of planet Earth and kind of classified them genus, species, all of those particular categories that many of us painfully work through in biology. Now, there's personal identity here. She shall be called, and in the English it reads woman, but the Hebrew name that he gives her is Isha. You know, that's actually the first name of the woman. We, we think of her as Eve, and that's okay. That's actually name number two. And by the way, if you read into chapter three, name number two comes as a response of faith, again, from Adam, as he considers what's happened through their sin and then God's kindness in promising a redeemer. So there's all kinds of redemptive hope being expressed through the name Eve. But before she was Eve, she was Isha. And you know what his name is at this point? Ish. 
Clearly, there, there is more than just similarity, and, and Adam even explains it. She was taken out of me, created by God, and in this moment of exuberant joy, I also recognize she is the perfectly corresponding one. And the name I give to her reflects the unity that God is creating between the two of us, the relationship that suddenly is brought to me out of God's kindness and wisdom and power. And if that's not enough, let's remind ourselves again, if we were Hebrews reading this as Moses wrote it, you'd see it's poetry. He's spontaneously speaking poetry. These are all testimonies to the joy that he's experiencing, to just the overwhelming reality that he is now personally identified with this one individual. And I'm always convicted at this point and just want to share the challenge that God puts before my heart. Husbands, we, we need to view our wives through the, the lens of this passage. Recognizing that God in His great wisdom and power has done something abundantly more than we needed or even could have asked for by bringing a wife to us. And I wonder if you have experienced of late this kind of holy awe and powerful delight that God has done what He did. I know that our wives are not perfect, but I think the greater problem that inhibits so many of us from viewing them as we should is that our souls are scarred and scabbed with our own sin. so scarred and scabbed that we can't see them as God has created them and redeemed them to be. Scarred and scabbed with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and lust. And we need to ask God to clean our hearts and heal our souls and remove the sinful debris that keeps us from seeing our wives as God's marvelous creation, God-like helpers, the perfectly corresponding ones. Brothers, we need to ask God to give us eyes to see them with Adam-like vision. And that's true not only for husbands, it's true for every man in this room. God did not create them as products to be consumed. God did not create them as beings to be objectified. He created them to reveal himself. Now, it's not only Adam's testimony that points us to the blessing, but God's command testifies to the blessing that he intended. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that's the command that Jesus was referring to last week in Mark 10. That's the point he's trying to drive the Pharisees back to in their thinking. They're looking for loopholes. They're looking for even the smallest reason to, to religiously justify divorcing a wife. And Jesus is saying, God never intended that. He actually designed you 
to leave your father and mother, to hold fast to that one woman, and to become one. A unity that is not disunited, if I can put it that way. And we looked last week very briefly at the term, hold fast. It means to be glued together. Two individuals created of the same flesh now become one flesh. And the idea of one flesh, as Alan Ross writes in his commentary on Genesis, expresses the complete personal community of one man and one woman as spiritual unity. Think about that. God didn't create people to just be hermits. He created us to be together. Now, in the text, again, we, we've considered that Adam's response testifies to the blessing. God's command testifies to the blessing that two should become one, and they are better as they are one than they would be individually. There's a third thought here, and God's observation testifies to the blessing of His creation. Look at verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What is this all about? Well, again, remember who it's being written to initially. Former slaves. Former slaves whose, whose ideas about male and female and marriage and place in the world had been so warped and distorted by the, the cruel Egyptians that many of them wouldn't have had any sense of who I am and how I ought to relate to other people. And even the sense of proper clothing or the lack thereof would, would have been skewed. But God is saying there is one setting in which to be unclothed is actually intended to be a powerful spiritual truth and blessing. And you think about what is involved in this particular idea of being naked in the presence of somebody else yet not being ashamed. The only way that is possible is if, first of all, you are absolutely secure in the presence of that other person, and second of all, if you are absolutely sure this is a pure and holy thing. And that's exactly what God is trying to teach us, that in marriage as He has designed it, there is and absolute security. In marriage as he has designed it, there is a real and absolute purity. Nothing to hide. No reason to protect myself from this one other person. Nothing to fear in or from the other person. But the reality of our experience in the world today is that this is the, this is the farthest thing from the truth. We long to be loved like this, don't we? Every one of us does. You, you long to have at least one person on planet Earth who would just love you for who you are, someone you could tell anything to, you could share anything, whether it be your triumphs or your greatest failure, whether it be of a, of a financial and business nature or of a deeply personal and spiritual nature. There's something about finding that person or maybe even a small group of people that just accept you without judgment, without self-righteous assessment of your life. They just take you for who you are. You may have come close with that kind of relational security, but I dare say if you've sought that even in the realm of physical love that was not pure, you have known greater hurt. 
one illustration, just one illustration of how much pressure we as a culture put on ourselves to figure out a way to be loved and accepted as we are for who we are. I think could be illustrated in this. Did you know that the Salt Lake City market for plastic surgery is among the largest in the nation? Some of you are well aware of that. A 2017 report by BYU states that Salt Lake City not only had the most practicing plastic surgeons per capita in 2007, that's 12 years ago, but at that time it was also ranked America's most vain city by Forbes. The city has carried that stigma, the article goes on to write, ever since, and billboards advertising cosmetic procedures along I-15 add to the state's national reputation. In 2015, Salt Lake City was second to Miami for the most surgeons per capita, according to Real Self. And although Utah no longer leads the country for plastic surgeons per 100,000 people, fierce competition drives down prices for plastic surgery procedures in the Beehive State. Listen to this. About 20% of the people that one particular surgeon sees are from out of state, and out of state patients, and then here it is, mommy makeovers make up his largest group of patients, which by the way, a mommy makeover typically costs between nine and $20,000. The mom demographic is also the largest group plastic surgeon Dr. Mark Jensen sees. He says, young moms who are done having children want to have their bodies back. They still feel young and vibrant and want their bodies to feel that way too. Jensen believes that this is his largest demographic of patients because Utah has a lot of women who get married and have children at a young age. The second largest demographic for Jensen is divorced or widowed women who are seeking out a new relationship but feel insecure about their bodies. You see, there's some kind of cultural standard that a woman feels like she has to measure up to and so it drives her to spend between nine and $20,000 to try to recapture something she feels she lost through childbearing, which ironically is the very thing that God created her, and he didn't give men the capacity to do it. But that's a, that's a God thing. What would drive any of us to take such radical and costly procedures? Insecurity. I want to eliminate the, the risky and scary things that might keep somebody else from loving me for who I am. And beloved, what God designed into marriage initially that Moses is even describing here at the end of the chapter as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those very things portrays a relationship where there actually is perfect security and there's purity, where you could stand in the presence of another person with nothing covering your body or your soul and know that you're loved. So what happened? I mean, what, what happened that this unbelievable moment in the history of the world has been lost? That we would move from perfection to corruption, from special names and spontaneous poetry to accusations and abuse, from security and purity to oppression and exploitation, because those are all things that not only characterize our world, they're actually things that you find in Genesis 3. Sin happened. 
I thought about using the Apple logo here. Because you know that that's what that logo is about. One bite out of an apple. Where do you think they got that? From Genesis 3. Yeah, sin changed everything. It is impossible to estimate the impact of the fall. In Genesis 3, we read that the man and the woman who were created by God for these marvelous things fell to the temptation of the evil one. And in that moment of high treason and rebellion, they wrecked and ruined what God had created for our blessing. And where there was initially divine mission, it's now turned into a fight for survival and self-preservation. And where there was initially an equality and partnership, now there is opposition and a fight for control. And where there was a perfect correspondence and complementary relationship in all of life, now there is competition, mistrust, fear, and frustration. Sin wrecked it all and would have sent the entire race into the abyss of hell forever. But for one thing. I want you to see it in your own Bible. Look at Genesis 3 and find verse 15. God in mercy pursues the sinning man and the sinning woman. And he comes to them and asks a series of questions. And when he gets to the heart of the matter, he actually begins speaking to the serpent, first of all. The the devil himself who had come to draw these two away from their creator and maker. And he says in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But now listen to this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you know that this verse is often referred to as the first gospel? It's the first good news. It's God's response to our rebellion and sin. He was not content to leave that man and that woman in that fallen condition, on this course, headed for destruction, certainly through physical death, into eternal spiritual death. He comes and in great grace and mercy rescues them and says, I will act in such a way. And when I act, I will actually establish a spiritual enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And those two races have existed ever since. Those who have followed God in faith, looking forward to this one particular offspring that he also mentions here, for he says the seed of the woman, singular, it's one son who will be born. One special son who will have the power and authority and credibility to deal a death blow to this mortal spiritual enemy of God himself, the devil. And when that son arrives, he will work in such a way that this horrific moment of curse and what has moved from blessing to destruction will be reversed 
and life and reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness and wholeness will be reinstituted. But it's only through this special Son. Now we know because we have the whole of Scripture that the special Son being promised here is none other than Jesus Christ. But what a moment of good news. And that's actually what prompts Adam to give Ish, uh, Isha a second name. The woman who just moments before had been his enemy because she led him to that point of temptation. Oh, he's responsible, but he wants to lay the blame on her. The one who now will, according to God's word, oppose him many days of his life, and he will seek to rule over her. But nonetheless, through her, the hope of salvation comes, and the name Eve means mother of all living. And that's more than just a biological reality that every descendant who came into the world after this ultimately came through Eve. There's spiritual significance in this. He's saying this woman who the serpent tempted and led us into this fall, I'm responsible before God for my own sin, but through her, God will bless us all. And if you know Jesus Christ savingly today, it goes all the way back to this first gospel and a spiritual mother named Eve. Back to marriage, an author that I have gained much from over the years, Andreas Kostenberger, has written a book on God, marriage, and the family, and I would commend that to you. It's by that title, God, Marriage, and Family. But in it, he writes, contrary to the world's notion that truly exciting love must be outside of the confines of marriage, Scripture makes it clear that it is the very security provided by an exclusive, lifelong marriage relationship that allows for the sexual satisfaction and fulfillment of both the man and the woman. Liberated from the self-centeredness of sin and from the desire to manipulate one's spouse to have one's own needs met, the marriage partners are free to love their spouse in a spirit that is completely self-giving and hence able to love and enjoy the other person without fear of rejection, abuse, or domination. Then he says, married love turns out to be the fulfillment of every man's and every woman's dream, but it proves elusive to those who have not been renewed and transformed by the Holy Spirit upon repentance and faith in Christ. And that's the key. Because the impact of the fall on marriage is so profound that you and I don't have the capacity to rescue our own marriages. Only Jesus has the power the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the great Redeemer. Now, that's not to say that, that two non-believers couldn't have a, a really great marriage, because many do. But I'm here to tell you that you can't experience what God has ultimately designed and created you to enjoy in marriage apart from Jesus Christ. And for some of us, the sin is so deeply embedded it in us that the hope of any good thing coming about in marriage seems like a dream in and of itself, but through the power of this same Lord and Savior, all things are possible. And some of you could give testimony to that power of Christ and the Holy Spirit at work in your own hearts and transforming your marriages over 
a period of time or, or even years or decades and say, we are not now the people we used to be. Praise God. Real marriage transformation begins in you and me as we humble ourselves before God. I was thinking how appropriate it is to finish the service today at the Lord's table. Because just as all of us individually need what this symbolizes, all of our marriages need this too. Apart from the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, there's not one husband and wife here who have hope. But because the body of Christ was broken and because he shed his blood, the curse and consequences of sin have in fact been reversed and a new life and a real rescue and a powerful reconciliation is offered to those who come in humility, who are willing to say, I'm a desperate sinner, God forgive me who are willing to say, oh, Lord Jesus, if you don't save me, there is no hope. So as we share the bread and the cup again today, we do so in joy looking back. It's a different kind of exuberant joy, isn't it? But still a joy to look back to the, the brutal moment where he died, painful death, suffered horrifically. But our joy is that his Sorrow has brought life. We look forward from this day, knowing that a day is coming when Christ will return personally, visibly. And we will share a, a different kind of banquet table with him. Those who have been forgiven, those who have been brought into the household of God by faith. So we look back with joy, we look forward with joy, and we savor what God has done.